Research for what? Hello and welcome to Research for What, the podcast that discusses scientific research, its purpose and impact. I'm your host, Ron Bouvray. Each week, I will interview recognized thought leaders who share the same passion for science and research and invest the energy, time or money. We will talk about the challenges and opportunities for research. I'm also very keen to find out how experts define impact and what methods they use to measure it. Every week, I will ask the question, research for what? Today, I'm very excited to chat with Alan Jones. Alan is based in Sydney and he's an angel investor, tech entrepreneur and mentor and has worked with, as an entrepreneur in residence with accelerator programs like Startmate, MuroD and Blue Chile. Alan is currently working for the Remarkable Accelerator Program, which focuses on disability tech startups. Alan is very experienced, very well known, and very well respected in the startup community. And I'd like to ask Alan two questions, very easy to answer, Alan. How to turn a startup into a unicorn, and why creating a good business is sometimes not good enough. Alan, thanks very much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Ron. And, uh, and I'm excited to be here. Let's, let's get started. Right. So let's start with a unicorn question. Looking at you know the way that everyone describes a unicorn, a unicorn is a private startup that's valued at at least one billion dollars. It's supposed to be rare. What is your definition? I'm fine with with that definition. A billion dollar. There are many, many more billion dollar technology companies in the world today, and and that's the result of a number of different effects. But I'm I'm fine with that valuation. Um, we, we now have a lot of them, and we have a lot of them that are, you know, Decker and Dodecker unicorns now as well. So, so companies that are worth multiples of a billion dollars. So why is it so hard to create a unicorn? And wh- why does everyone want to make a unicorn? What makes a startup a unicorn? Mm, yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand the macroeconomic effects that have created the unicorn part of the tech startup industry. And... One of the things that has occurred is, is that there has been a, a dramatic slowdown in the number of technology companies that IPO, that go public, that are list on a stock exchange. And uh, there's been a number of reasons for that. But one of the reasons, and it, it kind of affects the creation of the unicorn class in two different ways, is the rise of, of private capital. There's, there's, there's been a, a huge growth in the super wealthy and also in very large private capital capital funds who are actually quite happy for the most part to continue investing in, in private companies without seeing any particular need anytime soon to take them public. So many of those have been sovereign funds, China, Saudi Arabia, many of them have just been large uh, private equity fund managers. But between them, they have provided a new source of capital that used to be provided by stock exchanges. So when, it, when a company is getting up around several hundred million dollars US in, in valuation, that's traditionally when you take it public, or perhaps you take it public even earlier, if your current investors need you to, to take the IPO path, because say, for instance, they've got a fund which is, which is maturing fairly soon and they need to start looking for exits. Or perhaps you take a public at a very early stage just because it's growing so tremendously fast and, uh, and seems to have public sentiment. 
So public sentiment is also another part of what drives the valuation of a company at a billion dollars. It's difficult, it's not impossible, but it's, it, well, it's easier to become a unicorn when the public knows of you, when you're already a bit of a household name. Because uh, everybody needs to understand, you know, why it is that investors are, are piling money into a unicorn, and that's just easier to justify, easier to understand if if uh, the woman or man at home understands what it is that you do. Ideally, as a customer, but perhaps just from hearing about you in the news. Fundamentally, a company becomes investable essentially because it's got one, ideally more than one, of four things. It should have a world-class team, and so that so a world-class team defined by what they've actually achieved in creating new high-growth technology companies. If that's not available, then world-class team might be defined by people who have a tremendous background for what it is that the technology company is trying to achieve. You know, so so that might be academic. Um, it might be research related to that field, for instance. But it might also be incredible track record at, at, at growing something like a Salesforce or an Uber or something like that. You know, so a, so a, a company which has been respected for its execution on business model terms. So world class team. That's one no. aspect. Another aspect of its business is it might have unique and commercially valuable IP. So there are businesses like Airbnb, for instance, where certainly in the early days, there was not very much in the way of, of actual innovation intellectually, intellectual property. There was really just a new business model and a tremendous ability to take that business model to market and scale it rapidly. You know? So if instead you've got fascinating intellectual property in, in, a, in a field of research, which is difficult to duplicate without putting a large number of PhDs on a problem for 10 years, then that and that has commercial value, you know, then that's one of the things that make you investable as a company. Right. And then the third thing is 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 very, very obvious. Are you growing very rapidly in terms of the number of customers that you service? And then the fourth thing is are you growing very rapidly in terms of, of your revenue growth? So any company can be investable in the tech startup industry if, if they have one of one or more of those of those four things. And generally speaking, what we observe in companies that later become unicorns is that they are out-competing other people in that space in terms of one of those four things, usually in terms of how rapidly they're growing customers and revenue. Especially you invest very early, in early stages with people who often have um, just an idea. How quickly... Hmm. Does one need one of these four attributes, advantages? Investors and startup founders need to appreciate that uh, investing is a two-sided marketplace. There are, there are people with capital looking to invest in startups, and then there are startups looking for investment capital. And the supply and demand in that marketplace plays a role in determining how much capital might be available, at what valuation, and how early in the journey of a business. You know? So anybody who can show outperforming show that they're outperforming on one of those four categories at an early stage and who has the confidence to go out and attempt to raise capital is likely to be able to raise capital more quickly than their competitors at about the same stage of growth. So so part of it part of it is it, it is about how are you performing on one of those four metrics. Another part of it is how much confidence and, and skill do you have in going out mm-hmm. and getting those investment conversations going. And then the next part of it is, well, like how hot or how cold is the market? So when the market is, quote, unquote, hot, 
that means there's um, a greater supply of capital for, relatively speaking, a smaller number of great investment opportunities. Mm-hmm. And when the market is cold, that means that the amount of capital looking to invest right now has, has reduced or we have more companies, more new companies looking to raise capital. You know, so that when that supply demand metric changes, everything changes along with it. So in in the past 10 years, we've seen tremendous growth in the number of unicorns, partly because there's been more capital piling in from entities like sovereign wealth funds wanting to do a soft bank and wanting to put large checks into, into high growth companies. And so that makes the market hotter. And so that makes it potentially a little bit easier to raise capital at any stage of investment. And what can also happen is that here in Australia, a lot of our early stage capital comes from people who are entrepreneurs from another industry and who now appreciate that there's money to be made by investing in early stage startups and so if they have a source of capital that has performed well for them in the past few years, then they're more likely to take a bit of a punt mm-hmm. and write a small check into an early stage company than they would be at a time like now, say, mm-hmm. you know, where if you're the owner of a construction business or, or you are a part owner of, of a healthcare group, you may be doing quite well. If on the other hand, you made your money running hospitality businesses or travel businesses, you're probably not thinking about making new investments right now. You're probably trying to think about keeping your core companies alive. So what we're seeing right now, literally in the last few months, is, is, is a bit of a drying up in the early stage capital from angel investors. So what is your recommendation or your advice to people who've got ideas now? Is it to wait? <laughs> you, know, you put it back in your drawer and wait until it gets better? What do you do? No, um, so VCs, VCs will say to you that there's always going to be sufficient capital to back great companies. And technically that is true. The challenge obviously as a founder is, is to put yourself in a position where you, one of the, you are one of those great companies for whom the capital will be available. So, you know, you need to remember that the, every dollar being invested can be invested only once and it has to be, you know, the, the best possible investment opportunity that's available right now. So the challenge as a, as a startup founder is, is to be aware of what else is out there in the ecosystem at the same stage as you that's raising about the same amount of money and to be able to benchmark yourself against them. You know, just, that's really the way you're going to be able to tell, well, what are my odds of raising capital right now? Is to learn more about who else is raising about the same amount of capital, probably in the, in the same sort of industry or addressing the same kind of market. You know, so... Fintechs over here at the moment seem to be doing pretty well. Medtech at the moment, depending on the kind of medtech, doing okay. But all of all of the the previous interest in in large scale, low revenue per customer businesses like entertainment or, or, or lifestyle, you know. So if you're building a mobile app to help people order a coffee more quickly, now would be a really really tough time to raise capital. Whereas if, if, if you're a startup that's going to help uh, medical practices process inbound uh, customers for, for uh, pathology testing, say, or just to book an appointment for a GP in some kind of more efficient, low-touch manner that helps the GP run a more efficient medical practice right now, that would be, that would be a relatively warmer space to be looking for investment right now. Um, so that's, that's part of the challenge, like to understand the, the competition that you have because every dollar can only be invested once. Another part of the challenge is really to understand whether raising capital is actually the right path for you. Mm-hmm. And that's, 
you know, for some people, unfortunately, that seems to be they make the decision early on and then they never vary their position on that for, for the rest of the history of their company. And I think that's a shame. I think that's a decision that we all need to come back and review on a, on a periodic basis. There are, there are two ways to grow a company. One is to grow it out of excess cash being thrown off by, by revenue. And revenue growth over time gives you more cash to invest more in your business, which we call bootstrapping in mm-hmm. the early stage of a company. And the other way to do it is to raise money from investors, which is essentially borrowing money from people who have money, promising more return in the future and using that money in the meantime to grow the size of the business. There's lots of pros and cons between both approaches, but you can't easily have your foot in both camps at once because the way you structure a company and the, and the way you take it to market is, is very, very different. So a venture-backed company can potentially grow much, much more quickly than a bootstrapped company much of the time because they have access to more capital if they can show their investors that a dollar applied to growing the business delivers a multiple in terms of the valuation of the business in return. I put in a dollar and you make a dollar fifty from a customer, that's that means I can put in ten dollars and get a correspondingly increasing mm-hmm. return on investment. So raising capital for successful venture backed companies should be a thing assuming the economic conditions don't change too much and assuming you're good at managing the relationships with those investors. For a bootstrap company, you have more control potentially over the future direction of your company and how you choose to manage it. However, you don't have ready access to capital until you're at the stage where you might be able to fund the business through revenue-based financing or perhaps just traditional business bank borrowing. And you need to have, you know, if you're doing business bank borrowing, you need assets that you can borrow against. Technology, often we don't have any assets to borrow against. With revenue-based financing in Australia, you need to be looking at about a five mil annual turnover before you really qualify for the the sorts of revenue-based financing that might be available. So first, make that decision. Are we a bootstrapped company or are we going to go and raise money from investors? And that kind of informs your strategy from there. But then come back, rather than trying to keep one foot in both camps, because that will never work, come back and review that decision perhaps annually and agree as a leadership team and as a board, do we continue to bootstrap in the current market conditions given what our competitors are doing? Are they growing faster or slower than us? How many of them are venture-backed? How many of them are bootstrapped? Could we have a competitive advantage by now choosing to raise capital to grow faster than our competitors say? That might be one decision you want to review periodically. So I'm not a big believer in in, in uh, like a, having an ideological decision there. Like it shouldn't be dogma-based. We shouldn't go, I will always remain bootstrapped and then I can be like Elon Musk and, and control 100% of my company, right? That's most likely to, to end in failure. There aren't very many Mark Zuckerbergs who get to control unicorns. Can we come back to the team? You know, it's often said you have to have a smart team, you have to have a diverse team, a resilient team. Is that true? And do, when do you have to have all the players you need in your team? So I'm thinking, for example, academics or researchers who develop who are developing a technology. How quickly do they need to partner with someone who understands finances, budgeting, customer satisfaction? Forming a team at the early stage in a startup is is is, is a bit like um, a bit like a marriage, except that it involves more than just two people. It might be four or five people. All of those people have to get along for a long period of time. You know, you do you don't get. Uh, value out of that relationship unless you all hang around together for at least five, more likely 10 or 20 years. 
And so, and, and getting back out of those relationships, if the relationship starts to founder, can be as expensive as getting out of a marriage and as heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you should rush into finding co-founders or, or deciding that somebody should be your co-founder. You should invest the same sort of time getting to know each other as, as you might if, if you were considering marrying someone for the next 20 years. So the path towards deciding to become co-founders is actually a lot longer than most people might imagine if, if, if you want to have a high chance of success. And, uh, and the way you might choose to get started, getting to know someone might be just, you know, once we're allowed to sit in coffee shops across Australia again, to sit down and have a series of coffees over time, just to shoot the breeze and bounce ideas off each other and learn more about how the other person works and their relative level of interest. You know, because when somebody says, hey, you know, I'd like to buy you a coffee and bounce some ideas off of you, it doesn't mean that they want to join you and earn no salary for the next couple of years while they take a huge risk and, and potentially ruin their careers forever. But it might mean they might be prepared to give you their perspective on some of the challenges that are facing you right now. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the next way to go, if you think this might be somebody that might become, you know, a team member in time, is to start to see if you can give them small units of work to contribute to the business and to start to see if you can find a way to compensate them for that work because all work should be paid for in some way. You need to find the currency that works for that person and works for you. So it might be a barter system where you've got some skills that you can apply to what they're doing right now to help them with what they need and they can provide the value to your business in return or perhaps you find a way to pay them a small amount of money. But the most important thing is, is to tightly define the unit of work that they're going to complete for you and so that you can judge the quality of their work and their expertise accurately because you've given them a very closely defined task to perform and you're really judging them on whether or not they're capable of, of completing that or not. You know, So when we have a, a very loose, free-flowing, flexible kind of conversation with somebody in a coffee shop and they go, yeah, well, I'd love to help with that. And then you don't hear from them for six weeks and they come back with something that's not at all what you imagined that they would do. Well, then that's your fault. That's too big a unit of work, too poorly defined, and you've only just started getting to know this person. And so you have no way to judge whether or not they're a useful member of the team because you just haven't been clear enough about what the business needs from them right now. So... If that goes well and they perform really well with a very small unit of work, give them another series of very small units of work and compensate them however they need to be compensated to see how they perform in iteration. Do they get better? Do they get faster? Are they already performing at about their limit or can they improve over time, do you think? right? And then once you've seen that iteration a number of times and you're starting to feel like you're growing into a, a productive way of working together, then you start to broaden the scope of the units of work so that it might go from being a one-week task to a three-month task over time. So once you've got somebody performing a three-month task for your business, which is important to the business, then it's time to sit down and say, you know what, I, I feel like like you're really contributing to the business here and I'd like to start a, a discussion about you know, reducing the cost of you to the business, but also giving you some long-term stake in the future success of the business. Let's talk about sharing some equity with you on a, a vesting schedule over time. We're going to set aside a part of the company stock. And if you continue performing the way that you're doing right now, gradually over time, you will start to accrue a little bit of equity in the business. Mm-hmm. So now we're starting to 
align somebody towards becoming either a part-time or a full-time employee with some equity in the business so that we're not going to walk off and take those skills and experiences elsewhere to somebody else. Once that's been going for a period of time, and maybe it's a year, maybe it's two, maybe it's three, depending on the person and the need that you have, then it's time to sit down and say, you know what, sometimes I feel in these discussions that we have that, you know, it's, it's, it's not about CEO and, and employee. It feels more like I'm talking to a fellow leader in the business. You know, I feel like you care about as much about the future of the business as I do. I feel like you're giving as much of yourself that it would be as, as, as big a setback for you as it would be for me if something went wrong. And I think it's time to talk about like setting some new goals for you that make you, you know, part of, of the executive of, of, of the business as joining the board or you know, becoming some sort of vice president kind of title, making that person feel like this is a shared leadership of the business now. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, for some people that, that might be a six month journey for other people, there might be a five year journey. I think the longer you stretch that journey out, the more likely it is for that relationship to be successful. Mm-hmm. And that's, not what most founders want to hear from me when I say, <laughs> when they say to me, how do I find a, good, a co-founder for my business? That's usually not what they want to hear. They want to, oh, you just go to this URL that you've never heard of and type search and then you'll get three results and you ring one of those people and they go, sure, I'll drop what I'm doing at Westpac or ComBank and yeah. come and work for free for 12 months and do your startup. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the product or the service that the startup is, is working on. Does it matter? I mean, you can only have the ideas that you have and uh, everyone is biased. Everyone thinks their ideas, you know, is fantastic, is great. Does it matter these days what you're working on? You started to touch on this. Yeah. You're, you're never going to be a successful tech startup founder if you don't have a slightly unreasonable degree of, of belief in your own capacity mm-hmm. to succeed and a slightly more than reasonable belief that the current idea that you have is going to be well changing, mm-hmm. but it's a spectrum, and, and the other end of the spectrum is a dangerous place to be. You know, so when I or, or another experienced member of the startup community meets somebody who is just completely uncoachable and re- reacts to every question that I ask as if it was a direct challenge to their intelligence and and a threat, then I'm never going to back that person. You know, mm-hmm. because I've I've seen that archetype before, and. Uh, that, that leads to heartbreak for, for investors. So you need to have a, a degree, you know, slightly more than the average person, belief in yourself and in your idea. Mm-hmm. But really the process is how do I get good at learning what I don't know? And how do I get good at finding the people who can teach me how to do that? How do I find a way to persuade them to help me when they've probably got other things that they were doing before I reached out to them? You know, how do I make it worth a while intellectually or emotionally or financially within my means to achieve the goals that I have? And how do I maintain at the same time a slightly unreasonable belief in my idea, but also remain plastic enough, flexible enough to be able to take on board the advice of people who might have seen this before so that I can course correct, so that I can improve my idea over time, so that I can increase my chances of success. Because, mm. you know, this is not, this is not a, a crusade. We're not on a holy crusade. We have to course correct along the way because that's where great success stories come from. All of the great unicorns have, have what we call pivots in their history where they've dramatically changed the direction of, of, of the idea that was the formation of the company. 
if, if you follow the, the story of, of Zoom, you know, the tool that we're using now to have this conversation, it arose from everything that the company founder could see was broken with the video conferencing tool that was uh, sold by that by his previous employer. You know, so effectively he took everything that he learned from that experience and pivoted into the tool that became Zoom and became vastly more successful. So I, it's a it's a difficult balance. Everybody needs to sit somewhere on on the scale between I don't need anybody's help and I'm a genius, and I don't know anything and uh, and I'm going to take the advice of every single person I talk to. We all have to sit somewhere in that spectrum. Um, and it's a delicate balance, but the, you know, the truth is you probably want to be a little bit more confident in yourself than you actually really should be. So this is two things are very interesting for me here. One is success. So how do you define success? Is, is success for a startup or for a founder or for a team of founders and, um, and anyone who backs them up, is that making a lot more money? Is it developing a service that's going to be used by a lot of people? Is it helping people? What is success? And who, who cares about what success looks like? Yeah. Well, even in companies that I haven't been a co-founder of, that I've just participated in as an investor, I can still sometimes count the, the experience as a success, even when I've lost my money, you know, because mm-hmm. sometimes I've had a chance to form a relationship with a founder who's learned from the experience of a company failing, and then I've had a privileged and early opportunity to invest in their next venture where they've deployed all of the new intellectual property that they learned and all of the emotional maturity and all of the leadership skills that they learned in the failure of their last business and that their their second or third subsequent business has become you know a significant success. So success is, is very difficult to define. I think one of the unhealthy things about the tech startup industry is that there's <laughs> Everybody wants to be the CEO. Everybody wants to be the original founder of the business. And, and uh, I don't know any other industry like that in the world. <laughs> you know, so in every other normal industry, people go into that industry wanting to learn, yeah. you know, wanting to start out as a junior or as an intern or as an apprentice and learn their skills. And, and you know, you set out to be a great chef. You know, you don't imagine that that, you don't imagine that in five years you'll be a great chef. You imagine that maybe in, 20 or 30 years, if you work incredibly hard and you're incredibly lucky, maybe then you'll be a great chef. But most people working as chefs aspire to be a good chef, mm. you know, and some of us and the journey towards becoming a good chef become great. I, get, I, I think a, a problem that we have in the tech startup industry, and it's a, it's a cultural, it's, it's a problem around the central myths that, that created our industry, is that most people step into our industry believing that they can, that they can be that Great chef. And the only other industry I think like it is the music industry, is the popular music industry, where people go into that music and, and, and to be a recording music star in their heart of hearts, either believing that they are the next Beyonce or, or believing that they can pretty quickly get to that point or that they have a shot at it or that it, it's completely random and anybody can be the next Beyonce and it may as well be them. None of those myths are true. But in the tech startup industry, I see that again and again. You know, people want to, oh, I want to be, I want to be a CEO. I want to be the founder of a billion dollar company. I think it's going to take me five years. Really, how much experience do you have developing self-driving systems for autonomous vehicles? Uh, none. <laughs> okay, well, that's going to be, you know, the odds are stacked against you, but let's get started and let's, let's see what relevant skills and experience you might be able to apply 
to that problem. So I think one of the definitions of success for me in the startup industry is, is learning a lot of commercially applicable skills of high value. You know, so, so the, the biggest meaningful financial return that I've had from working in the tech startup industry, I was just an employee. Mm -hmm. I was an early employee at, at Yahoo in the late 1990s, but not a particularly early employee. You know, I was I was an employee in the in the double digits. I was in I was in the first 200 employees. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's been easily been the most successful financial outcome that I've had. But you know what? I learned so much from the five years that I spent at Yahoo. High value, commercially applicable skills that I could then take to other startups after that. After that point, I'm not a great tech startup founder. I used to be a pretty great tech startup employee or early team member, you know. So I, I think that's one great definition of success. Another great definition of success is who is in the network that you are building as you go, you know. So so I have friends who've, who've been in Obama's staff. I have friends who've been, you know, leaders of, of unicorns. I have friends who I expect will be unicorns very shortly who used to be colleagues of mine. You know, when we were just spotty teenagers together. So that network has potentially, you know, huge value to me if I treat it with the respect that it deserves. And so I think another definition of success is, look, you know, well, I might, may not succeed, but the people who love me who used to be my colleagues may succeed massively. And that could be hugely valuable, that relationship. And then I think a, a third definition of success is, well, like, what would I rather be doing? You know, am I entering tech startups because I really can't? conceive of myself being fulfilled and happy doing any other thing, you know, or am I entering into it because I've heard that there's lots of money to be made in that industry. Mm -hmm. If you want to make lots of money in an industry and you don't care what industry that is, I'll recommend that you go into, you know, share trading or, or um, crypto trading or, or banking or something like that. There seems to be a lot of money in those industries. I find them absolutely unfulfilling, you know, so you should pursue your passions and for somebody to have a, an entire career pursuing their passion, I think that's a that's a, a very very valuable definition of success. But to, to defend the founders here, aren't they forced mm -hmm. to try and create or to pretend they want to create a unicorn if they present their business and their ideas and just say, "I want to be a good cook and make people happy with my food"? They are they're not going to get money, are they? It depends where and when you're raising money and how much progress you've made so far. So I don't think, if you're raising money from Australian investors, I don't think Australian, any Australian investor with any experience really wants to hear from you that you think you've got a shot at being a unicorn. They want to hear about much, much shorter term, less ambitious goals than that. Mm -hmm. And if they've been part of any company's unicorn journey before, they are probably smart enough to remember that luck had a far greater role to play in the unicorn valuation of that company than than smarts or, or execution of the leadership team. I, I don't think you can ever undervalue the, the, the importance of being in the right place at the right time with the right product. You know, I was reading earlier today about uh, Roomba, the uh, autonomous uh, vacuum cleaning robot. When the, the pandemic lockdown began, Roomba was, was you know, briefing investors that this was going to be very, very tough times for them. Their stock has been flying off the shelves. They cannot manufacture vacuuming robots quickly enough right now. You know, so sometimes you just 
and happen to be in the right place at the right time. Again, Zoom is a, is, is a great example of this. You know, you can be slaving away at a business like Zoom, you know. Zoom, when they first went out to raise capital, you know, heard from investors again and again and again that why would you try and do this? I mean, you know, the industry already has GoToMeeting that's owned by Cisco. It already has Skype, which is owned by Microsoft. BlueJeans Network is huge and Apple has FaceTime. Like, there's, there's no room for a company like Zoom right now. You know, go away and come back when you're making a lot of money in revenue. And then the pandemic happened, you know, it changed everything. So... I think Australian investors particularly don't want to hear from you that you have a plan to turn this company into a unicorn. I think what they want to hear from you is that you have a, a 12 to 18 month plan that makes sense. And they want to believe that you have the drive and determination and intelligence to uh, grow more quickly than your peers. Is it good enough to be wanting to make, to create a, just a good business? Yes. You know, so there are many different kinds of investors and even, you know, any one investor, their, their goals will expand when times are good and their goals will shrink when, when times get worse. And so there will be investors who a few years ago would have told you that you weren't being ambitious enough, who would now be really grateful to talk to you now that you are modestly profitable and uh, show no sign of being affected by the uh, looming recession. You know, so and individual investors will change. And then also there, there are investors investing for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the reason for investing in a company that might one day become a unicorn is, is the hope that at some point you'll be invited to participate in a, in a, in a secondary where incoming investors at investing at a later stage will be interested in buying out your shares. You know, because most of those unicorns uh, are too big to easily... Uh, IPO, uh, most of them will remain private companies for quite a while. So early investors in those businesses have largely been bought out by, by later stage investors. So other investors, though, will be very interested in investing in, in stable, um, sensibly growing, carefully and safely managed businesses that perhaps have an opportunity to pay a dividend to shareholders later on or perhaps just to be bought out in an acquisition, you know, at $20, $30 million. You know, that that could be a, a great exit. You know, what, one of my favorite investments of all time was a, um, a business called Spreets, developed here in, in Australia on the Groupon model, and it was acquired by uh, by uh, Yahoo, I think for $48 million. And, and that, was a, that was a great return for mm-hmm. its Australian investors because it happened so quickly. Uh, the business was only a couple of years old. And so, you know, investment return is is the quantum, is the is the dollar value, but also the time it took to get there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've you've got to think about well, what's the likely path of my business? What's it going to look like in five years from now, three years from now? Investors don't want to hear insane, crazy, laughable numbers. They want to hear believable numbers. So, come up with a story that that you believe in without being delusional. And then see if you can find investors that are interested in that kind of um, investment opportunity. Can you compensate a smaller return for greater impact for, you know, helping more people have more superannuation, have a better health? Can you compensate a smaller return against that? Yes, you definitely can. You know, as an angel investor myself, that is, is, is part of my uh, investment focus. Mm. And, and there is a whole class of, of, of venture capital that we call impact investment that mm. might look to invest in, in everything from social enterprises to solving big 
persistent, difficult problems in health, in inequality. So improving you know, environmental outcomes for industries or for nations. So it's not just about getting a financial return for, for anybody. You know? So in my own investment hypothesis, I won't invest in anything related to addictions. So that can be you know, physical addictions or, or, or um, emotional you know, addictions. So for instance, most gaming software companies I wouldn't choose to invest in no matter how good the potential financial returns, just not into, into addiction as a way to make money. And, and then I'll, you know, I'm, I'm trying over time to do a, add more diversity to the companies that I, that, that I have in my portfolio, both in terms of who the founders are, the communities that those companies serve, and also the diversity within their, within their, their workforce. And that's a that's a gradual thing over time, but it's but it's important to me. And, and it's it's uh, as as we learn to be better and in, in venture investors in Australia, I think it's becoming more of a remit for more of, of the tech investment community. So and and now today is the twenty sixth of June. You know, we're closing the first half of of the year. A lot of ideas often come through from from troubled times or crises. Probably hard to make predictions, but you know, are we going to have more opportunities? What do you think the second half is going to look like? For the most part, I've put my investment activity on hold. I'm not looking at new investments for um, for a while because while I still believe I'm a good judge of of good investment opportunities and tech startups, I feel like I need to understand the environment and the economic conditions in which those startups will need to grow. And so I think I can pick a good tech startup, but I don't think I'm a good judge of what's about to happen in the next six, 12, 18 months in the Australian economy or the global economy. There are just too many second and third order effects of, of, of the pandemic related lockdown around the world for me to feel comfortable about, you know, I can say, okay, in a microcosm, this, this tech startup is really interesting. It's got three out of the four mm-hmm. things that I think are necessary for investment. But, you know, what happens if, if all the businesses they rely on for customers have a you know, 50% drop in revenue over the next 24 months and they have to downscale mm-hmm. their operating costs as a result? They're not going to be interested in buying new software from, from a startup, even if that new software is going to help them with their productivity. They're just not going to have the free cash flow. And they're not going to have the permission from from the board or from shareholders to go investing in risky new technology. So um, I find it very difficult to predict what's coming up. I've written a couple of times about how I think it's important to take action, to take precautions about what might be coming. And so for people just beginning, the founders just beginning their startup journey, I think it's important to make sure that you um, take very good care of your side gig. You know, the whether that's full-time employment in, in, in your profession or uh, whether you have a, a, a part-time or, or a contract side gig that you're using for cash flow um, to live on while you work on your startup idea. I think it's, it's probably much more important to pay really good attention to that and to keep that, that alive than it is to, to make rapid progress on your startup at this time. Just until you know, we start to see um, the light at the end of the tunnel and be certain that it's not an oncoming train, I think it's probably good to be uh, cautious and, and uh, prepare for the worst and hope for the best at this time. I still would like to leave it with you know a sense of positivity. Uh, maybe maybe now is still the 
time to have ideas to think mm. about what one can contribute so, to make the place a better world. Yeah, well, you know, there are, yeah. If I were starting out now and, and I didn't already have an idea and I wanted to work on something that had a, a better than even chance of, of surviving the, the, the pandemic recession and that might even thrive in these conditions, I think what I'd be looking for is ways of using underutilized assets. So two of the, of the big unicorn successes from the past decade have been based on that kind of business model. And I'm thinking of, of Airbnb and, and Uber. Mm-hmm. So for Airbnb, the underutilized assets were people's spare bedrooms or apartments. And, uh, and with Uber, obviously, it was, it was fleets of vehicles and the drivers of those vehicles. So they, so they you know, started out making more money out of, out of assets that mm-hmm. other people owned. Mm. So that would be what I'm looking for. I think going into a recession, no matter how deep it goes, effectively what we're talking about is is we're we're building up inventory of underutilized assets. That could be people in a particular profession with a particular set of skills. It might be capital assets like bulldozers or, or backhoes, or, or it might also be whole teams of people. You know, so um, there, there, there are there are potential opportunities to take a, you know, a self-contained team that are capable of executing a particular kind of task and there's no work for that team within a current organization, can we take them out and, and lease them to another organization that has work and isn't able to, to staff up? You know? I mean, that's effectively a consultancy model, but we're taking a whole team of people from within an organization that wouldn't ordinarily consult. So there's going to be a lot of idle assets, you know. How can we repurpose cruise ships? You know, what can we do with passenger aircraft that are that's 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 more productive than just having them sit in a desert somewhere with a tarpaulin over the top of them? There's going to be a tremendous opportunity for the people who can be creative to think about better uses for those idle assets and people in the years to come. In the creative arts, the, the lockdown has has increased people's time online and also increased people's consumption hours and consumption spend on creative assets, you know, whether that be music that they listen to, online television and movies that they watch, games that they play, and you know their consumption. So people are buying more pieces of art online than they did before, more pieces of sculpture online than they did before. So I, I think potentially it's a good time to be a creative. You've, you've, you've got to find a global following at super low cost, and, uh, and you've also got to keep your side gig going alongside that. You know, mm-hmm. Don't make the jump from, from uh, barista to, to sculptor too quickly. Yeah, great. Well, that's awesome, Alan. So, listeners, off you go. You've got uh, Alan's advice here. Alan, thank you very, very much for your time. We had an awesome chat. Um, thank you very much. Ron, thank you. Thank you very much. And, and just, you know, just before I go, another great way to access advice and, and, uh, and uh, mentoring like this is to apply to join an accelerator program. So that might be a pre-accelerator program where you're working with idea stage founders on on ideas or it might be a full accelerator program where you bring a prototype or some early customers mm-hmm. and something that's hacked together out of trello and stripe but accelerator programs are, are kind of a safe haven for for startup founders in, in difficult times if you are a student or an alumni or staff 
of a university. Your university very well has an incubator or an accelerator where you can work on your idea and relative safety and, and where you increase your odds of coming across potential investors in your business. So I'm attached at the moment to an accelerator program called Remarkable. Remarkable.org.au is backed by Cerebral Palsy Alliance. And each year it works with a small group of tech startup founders who are working on solving problems in, in the space of disability and inclusion. You know, so if you're a potential startup founder looking for ideas to address with new technology solutions, I've got to say like disability is a huge, huge unexploited opportunity. When we look at the current technology solutions for people with disabilities, they are very, very low tech based on 70s or 80s technology. They haven't even come forward to the 2000s, much less the 2020s. So there are tremendous opportunities there. A huge advantage in disability that isn't shared in, say, fintech is that disability problems are global. If somebody's suffering a disability in Australia, unfortunately, people have that exact same disability all around the world. And so you'll be able to go global very, very rapidly. So, yeah, so look for an accelerator program that addresses the customers and the problems that you want to solve. And if you don't yet have an idea, then look for an accelerated program and come up with an idea that might help you apply to that accelerated program. And then you have greatly increased odds of success. Awesome. Thanks, Alan. Thanks very much for your time. It was great to meet you. Thanks for having me on, Ron. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Research for What. To connect and find more information about this episode, check out researchforwhat.com. Until next week. Research for what?